0: Yesterday, we found out a bit more about a large number of COVID-19 cases in Fort St. James and in that region of the province. So we have been told as well that we're going to see a shift when it comes to the gathering of information and notifying people, particularly in the northern health region or the more remote regions of the province. And a health services rapid response team has also been deployed to Fort St. James. Uh, Yesterday, during the news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry, she was asked about These cases. There are 39 active cases, uh, 20 people hospitalized with confirmed COVID. Um, And yes, there were a a small number that have had to be uh, released for for, um, a move to other places for a higher level of care. Let's bring in Mayor Bob Motion. He is the mayor of Fort St. James, joining us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Oh, uh, thanks for having
0: me. Uh, Well, how are things going as far as COVID 19 cases in Fort St. James right now?
1: Well, that's uh, that, that's the the uh, million dollar question, I guess. Really, um, the the big issue on on this is that we don't know. Okay, that the, the, the health agencies will not release uh, uh, localized uh, data. So so uh, what's what's happened here, I guess, is what what's brought this all to a head is is the uh, uh, provincial government sent uh, the the ambulance support. Uh, uh, a team to, to Fort St. James here. And and that was in the news uh, two days ago. Um, so they made a big splash about doing it. And I certainly don't want to criticize help. I, we appreciate the help that, that's being sent to us. So that's not the issue here at all. Um, what it comes down to is uh, the news report that was, was presented uh, when, the, when uh, uh, the, the support was coming here, um, Basically, it's, it, was, it included uh, a statement from BC Emergency Health Services that said there were 60 cases in uh, Fort Saint James. Um, yesterday, Northern Health uh, issued uh, a statement, and they said there were 40 cases in uh, uh, in, in the Amanika District, which includes Fort Saint James and the surrounding communities. Um, in either in, in either number here. Um, we, we certainly can't class this as an outbreak. There's 4,500 people that live in uh, in, in, uh, uh, in the surrounding uh, Fort Saint James district, and that excludes uh, the two uh, bands that are uh, uh, somewhere uh, remote from us. Um, and so, uh, whether it's 40 or 60, uh, I mean, we're, we're, that, that it's it's not the crisis that uh, uh, that it's that it's being presented. Hmm. Uh, my understanding, my understanding here uh, locally. It is that uh, uh, basically it's it's a groupings problem in other words uh, you're, you're getting family groupings there was an issue here with uh, 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 there's a support uh, um, it's called the key here which is basically supports uh, uh, the homeless people and there's also homeless shelter and that that, that, that grouping was, uh, uh, was was included in this too so for the most part it hasn't it, it, it's not uh, uh, Prevalent throughout the entire community, it's in it's in uh, sections and areas, and it certainly uh, skews towards the uh, First Nation community. Um, they have uh, uh, they have significant social problems uh, uh, in, on, on on these reserves, uh, uh, and and uh, the, the, their lifestyle and 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 living arrangements don't aren't conducive to social distancing and and, and self isolation. So. It's a much, much bigger problem uh, uh, on on the uh, First Nation Reserves. And if you were speaking to uh, uh, Chief uh, Prince here, um, you'd probably get a different perspective than you will get from me.
0: Uh, right because and that's that's one of the issues isn't it that the information and i know the, the health uh, minister has said and the health officer for bc has said they are going to uh, be releasing more detailed information more more community specific information but we haven't had that up until this point
1: no you haven't and, and I, I think what's what's happening here though is that there, there's there's two worlds here uh, uh there's there's the urban world and the and the and the rural world we're part of the rural world okay we're a small town here um i i have lots of i you have people in in all areas of the community i have lots of inside information i know i know that uh, uh there's more than 40 cases in fort st james alone um and that excludes uh that the tachi and, and benchy reserves and and they definitely have a problem there too so um the problem with, with with information or lack of information in a small community is that that if you've got an information void, somebody will fill it, and they'll fill it with misinformation. You know that's that's your Facebook world is is the and the social media world that that does that. And 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 in a, in a place like this here, um, we you we need to know we need to know how many people are, 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 are affected in Fort Saint James, and and. and I, I, I just don't understand the reluctance to keep playing games and doing it. And, oh, well, we can't identify, uh, areas or, or we, you know, people might, might figure it out. We, I know who, who's, uh, uh, not everybody, but I certainly know a number of people that are affected here. So I, I, it's fine to not release it in camloops or, 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 or a, a large center, but small towns here really, it, it, it is crucially important that, uh, uh, I mean, I just spent uh, half an hour on the phone with the mayor of Vanderhoof, and, uh, and, and, and basically he's, uh, uh, he's telling me the same thing here. He would like to know what, what, how many are, are, are in his community. So I, 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 I mean, if there's a single thing that comes out of this is that, that the health uh, agencies need to recognize that in small communities, identifying, uh, telling the number of, of cases there is not identifying people individually. Uh, regretfully, we know a lot of those people individually, even before they tell us anything. So um, that's that's probably the message I would like to send here.
0: Uh, Yeah, it is a different dynamic, certainly if we're looking at the more urban areas uh, compared to smaller uh, communities. You mentioned uh, the chief. uh, Chief Eileen Prince uh, told uh, Global News that they've now uh, put in a voluntary shutdown of their community, uh, the school. They're asking people to stay home uh, except for essential things, uh, buying groceries or medical appointments. Um, Is there a bit of a disconnect, though, as far as where the cases are and the response to the cases?
1: Um. A disconnect, uh, I, I mean, one of my counselors is a, is a doctor here. So, I mean, I, I, we've certainly got uh, as much on, on, the, on the ground uh, information as, as is available. The big problem here, I guess, is in the case of Fort St. James, um, the Nacozliwutian band is, is, is basically adjacent to, to Fort St. James. It, right? Or there's, you've got a dividing line, and, uh, uh, and there's one side and the other. I mean, the government has, has created that uh, division, and and uh, uh, so so there is no question that there's there's a, a much greater issue. Uh, I mean, the virus is just one one of many social issues that affects first nations. I live in I live in a community here. This is a uh, we as as, as uh, uh, we work together as as much as, as, as is possible in a community. If I look out my window here, um, there, I think I counted. I have six Nicasly uh, uh, band members that, that own houses circling my house. So um, those band members, though, are, are basically they have a home. They have a, uh, They are able to self isolate. We're able to, to to protect ourselves. To do the things that uh, uh, that the health uh, uh, officer is is instructing us to do. we we're, for the most part, we're capable of doing that, but but when you look at the living conditions on reserve, living conditions, the fact that you've got uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, three generations, uh, but definitely a, a lot of you know multiple generations jammed into into uh, uh, cramped quarters, um, it, it's just a recipe for for disaster. And 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 so when the virus comes along, it's just amplified on the reserves. And I. I I, uh, it, it, I don't know that I'd, I'd, I'd like to say it's a disconnect, but it, there's certainly two worlds here, and, 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 and different rules apply to, uh, to the two worlds.
0: Uh, do you, so what do you think needs to be done then? I know Dr. Henry yesterday said that a number of people have been moved out of the community, uh, some for health care, uh, some, she said, as a, a preemptive measure, somebody who might have uh, be more vulnerable, a compromised immune system. I, I mean, are there hotel rooms that people could uh, could utilize in this case? Uh, because it sounds like what you're saying is uh, people know what the orders are and know what the best practices are, but there's certain, there just isn't the infrastructure, there isn't the space uh, in some, uh, some scenarios to do that,
1: well, a lot more, a lot more on on reserve. The, 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 you have many uh, uh, reserve members who, li- ones that live on the reserve, that are dependent on, on on the band. The band is the government, as far as uh, uh, as far as they're concerned. Um, the biggest problem is the government can't do everything for everyone when they need it, uh, and, and so. When you ask about uh, uh, locally here, we have two facilities. We have a hotel and we have a motel. Uh, Now, as it stands right now, that's one of the questions that uh, uh, the mayor of Vanderhoof asked me about. Uh, uh, He's concerned that uh, uh, we might be sending uh, COVID patients to Vanderhoof. And I I said to him, I said, I don't really think that would be a concern. Um, The hotel is virtually empty. Uh, The motel is virtually empty. Uh, no one's coming to town. Uh, uh, the logging industry's in uh, basically, I mean, it's going, but it, it's certainly not. Uh, uh, it, it, it's depressed at, at, at this point in time, and so you, these uh, the two facilities we have here, generally speaking, would be uh, occupied by government uh, and support workers for the log, primarily for the logging industry, and they're not coming here. So, so both of those. Those the facilities, or either one of those facilities, could be re-repositioned uh, uh, to to be used exactly. In fact, they could probably. I would guess there's so few people living there right now they could probably make the whole <laughs> whole facility into into a holding place. So, so I don't think we'd need to go outside of Fort Saint James if that was the direction that that it was to go. Um, but that's going to be driven by by the demands from from the the Wu the, the lieutenant and Chief Prince, really, in, in this case here, because I think uh, they will be the ones that generate the, the, the large number of cases at this point in time.
0: The number that was put out yesterday, I think, uh, as you said, was was 39 or 40 cases. Do you think that's the true number? Or if not, what do you think a more realistic number is?
1: Uh, well, that's, that's the, the, the million-dollar question. Um, uh, what I can say is the inside information that's being given to me is that there are more than what we believe. There are more than 40 cases in Fort St. James alone. So, so what we're saying here, in effect, is that we don't believe the, the, the number of 40 from, uh, from Northern Health because on the ground, we're aware of, of, of significantly more more than that. But as far as pulling a number out of the air, I have no idea. That's, that's above my pay grade.
0: Uh, do you think that having the team there, the assistance from uh, BC, uh, from Emergency Health Services, will that help?
1: Oh, 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 oh uh, greatly, greatly help. Uh, the, 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 the thing is it's not the, the issue isn't that uh, we're very appreciative of the help, okay? And we needed the help. We have two ambulances here. You have a, a, a limited number of, of paramedics that that operate those ambulances, and they were completely over overwhelmed and overloaded uh, when, when this thing blew up. So So that's why they've sent the, 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 the support uh, uh, here basically they've sent additional uh, paramedics. I think there's four of them here right now. They're supposed to be here for four days, and my understanding is that uh, uh, they may be replaced. If, if the need is still there, probably will be. If the need is still there, then uh, uh, they will replace them with uh, four for, uh, fresh people uh, uh, down the road. So, um, and, and, But the reason that they came here was not because of the the number of cases. I mean, even whether it was 40 or 60. I mean, that's really, really, it, it's not large. The reason they came here is our our ambulance service couldn't cope, and they needed and they needed outside help. So, so and in, in, in that sense, uh, the the I'm very appreciative of it. It's just that, that, I think what happened here is that we made too much of a, a to do about sending them up here, and we sent the wrong message to to the province, but more importantly, we sent the wrong message to the community here because people are scared to death here now. Um, they're reading the news reports too, and, and the fact that they sent a support from outside. I did a, a video this morning we're gonna uh, put on our uh, website uh, this afternoon, and basically what I'm trying to do is 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 reduce the, 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 the fear factor here. Right? Uh, this is it's not as bad as it's being presented uh, or, or what, what the perception is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as I say as I say though, I'm coming from from a perspective here of I'm from the district of Fort St. James um, and and I started you know saying uh, uh, if you talk to Chief Prince you'll get a different perspective and and, and that is you know if I, if I was the chief there you wouldn't I wouldn't be talking this way.
0: All right. Well, we'll t- we're going to try and check in uh, with Chief Prince as well. Uh, mayor Motion, we'll leave it there. We're right out of time for today, but thanks so much, and I hope things uh, that people get the message that uh, that you are putting out and and aren't uh, scared, and the help uh, arrives. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk about this today. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Mayor Bob Motion. He is the mayor of Fort Saint James. We have put uh, a request out uh, for Chief Prince to comment uh, on this as well. We'll take a short break. Stick with us. We've been talking a fair bit about how the COVID-19 vaccine is going to be rolled out in this province as the first doses start being made available. We know there are some issues with transporting the vaccine. It will be at a central place, well, in two centralized places to begin with, and we'll see how that changes as other vaccines are getting approval, as they get approval and are made available. We wanted to check in with Christine Sorensen, the president of the BC Nurses Union. She's on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Glad to be here Jill.
0: Uh, First I wanted to get your response to that news uh, with the approval and with the vaccine starting to roll out.
2: Well as a public health nurse and I've been a public health nurse for 30 years uh, this was a great announcement. Uh, It really is hope on the horizon Um, but we have to remember this is still a long way out before we'll have everyone vaccinated so it's critically important we we continue with the public health measures.
0: Uh, and that's certainly a message uh, that's uh, been repeated uh, and, and reminding uh, people uh, to do that. Uh, have you been told any anything or do you have any idea on how nurses will, will fit into the lineup as far as uh, long term care, uh, emergency room or, or the most vulnerable places as far as where they will fit in and when they're getting the vaccine?
2: Well, we certainly support the decision to vaccinate those in long-term care and those at risk of severe disease in vulnerable communities. Um, but we also support the request uh, to vaccinate those that are caring for, the, for those people. So nurses who are working in our long-term care facilities, working in the emergency room or the ICU or the COVID hot units. Uh, that would be my, my first request, that we look at those nurses uh, and health care providers and then obviously then roll it out as, as other risks are identified.
0: Uh, we were chatting with Terry Lake yesterday with the BC Care Providers Association and asking about if there could be policy changes or protocol changes what things might look like after uh, people start getting vaccinated we start seeing hopefully visits again um, what are your thoughts on healthcare workers if there there is a policy change where they're required if they haven't been vaccinated required to wear a mask in the healthcare setting
2: Uh, a mask or a vaccine. So as we know, Dr. Bonnie Henry stated that there's no plans for mandatory immunization. And in Canada, as a public health nurse, we've never had a mandatory immunization program. We have a strongly recommended immunization program and we will be supporting uh, the vaccination and encouraging our members to get it. However, we do encourage our members and the public to be fully informed, to ask all the questions they may have about this vaccine and make the decision that is right for them.
0: Would you be in favour, though, of a policy that would, would require somebody then if they hadn't been vaccinated, that they would have to wear a mask or some other kind of protective gear? Uh, well, certainly there
2: will be a small number of nurses and other members in the public who, for a number of reasons, won't be able to be vaccinated. We know with this new vaccine, uh, people who are pregnant or immunocompromised, have allergies, children uh, can't receive the vaccine. Uh, so those people will have to continue to be protected and will need, and in nurses will need to be redeployed into areas where they are not at risk of, of contracting the virus or uh, caring for patients who may have COVID. Uh, so certainly there will continue with all the public health measures that are necessary for those who can't be vaccinated.
0: Uh, the Nurses Union, though, in the past uh, took this issue, uh, fought the issue when it came to flu shots, that nurses who didn't get a flu shot had to wear a mask. Uh, the union was, was, uh, was able to get that overturned uh, so that they wouldn't be required. I know this is totally different. I think the, the flu shot and, and a COVID-19 vaccine, we're not saying they're the same thing. Uh, but given that history of the Nurses Union, is there going to be that same kind of pushback if there is a policy in place? Uh, We have the
2: same sort of philosophy as we did even at that time. It was that uh, nurses should have vaccine choice uh, and they should not be shamed. There should be no punitive response for not being able to be vaccinated. Uh, Again, the vaccines are very different. The flu vaccine has inconsistent sort of effectiveness um, just simply because of the status of the amounts of or different types of flu strains in the world. Uh, This vaccine shows a much higher effectiveness rate Uh, and certainly you know, the impact of not not getting the vaccine is certainly significant uh, as we have seen from the status of the numbers of people who have died or become sick in this province from this virus. Uh, so certainly I think nurses will take that under consideration. Uh, they'll continue to wear masks and will continue to have all the same public health measures as we need to have in place Uh, to restrict the, the spread of this virus and care for our patients as we do with all communicable disease.
0: So do you see a scenario then or in any in any way a scenario where there could be a nurse who hasn't been vaccinated but also doesn't wear a mask?
2: Well, you know, we certainly believe in what we call an educational and encouraging approach. Uh, What I have learned through my career is that often if you spend the time addressing people's questions and concerns, uh, those people that are a little bit reticent to get vaccine uh, will will eventually come around because they'll understand more about the science behind it. But there will be people who, for whatever reason, and they may have medical reasons that will prevent them from getting this vaccine, uh, and their doctor will or nurse practitioner will advise them not to and we have to respect those individual decisions and if they are asked to mask during this pandemic period, uh, we need to support them and allow them to be able to continue to do that.
0: Uh, right, because I, I think the the question is is and we, and we get it's not to suggest that, that that if somebody for whatever reason doesn't have the the vaccine that there's some kind of anti vaxxer or there's something more going on. Like you said, there could be any number of reasons why somebody doesn't get the vaccine. But here we are at this point in the pandemic where we now have a mask policy for any place in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, so wouldn't it be reasonable in a healthcare setting, even when we're to the point where people are vaccinated and we're coming out of this? Pandemic that you would still have to wear a mask if you weren't vaccinated and you were dealing with the public in a healthcare setting.
2: Well, I think that we have to look far far enough ahead, uh, and I think to the time that you're talking about, where we will have the majority of the population vaccinated. By then, case numbers will be, uh, I would anticipate, extremely low, uh, and community spread would not be widespread. And so at that point, we would expect that the small number of nurses who are unable to get the vaccine for whatever region, uh, reason would be accommodated by their employer. Uh, if a mass policy is still required at that time, we'll certainly address that at that time uh, right now. There's a mask policy in place, and we fully support it, and we support all the other public health measures, and we'll continue to encourage vaccination of our members. What do you mean, though, by we would address
0: that at that time?
2: Well, I think that we'd have to look and see how many cases and the risk of uh, infection uh, at in the community and widespread community spread. If the public health measures for all people to be masking at all times uh, is dropped and that the public no longer has to wear a mask in acute care or long-term care facilities, uh, we would question the need for our own members to have to wear that. Uh, we are certainly in support of masking as it is now, which is a full public health measure for all members of the public and everyone in, in healthcare facilities.
0: All right, and Christine, just before I let you go, I wanted to ask how are nurses doing? What are you hearing uh, from nurses as far as stress levels. And it's got to be, uh, even though we now have this uh, light of the vaccine in the future, uh, how are things in healthcare right now?
2: It's a really difficult time for nurses. Nurses are incredibly distressed. You know, I met with a group this morning who are uh, working, uh, trying to support the surgical renewal plan and yet are receiving incredible amount of pressure uh, to have more and more surgeries in the system. And they're working copious amounts of overtime, extended shifts, too many shifts in a row. Uh, the moral distress that nurses are facing who are f- watching their residents and long-term care pass away, people they've cared for for a very long time, uh, they're they're really just um Stretched beyond, and they're no, and they're seeing what's happening to their colleagues across Canada, and they're fearful that that will be the status here in Can in British Columbia. Uh, so really, we implore the public to please do everything you can to reduce the spread of this vaccine. Nurses really are at the breaking point. They're doing their best, but really, uh, we we need to rest and recover to be able to get through this pandemic.
0: All right, we'll leave it there, Christine. Thanks as always for coming on the program. Great to talk to you. Great
2: to chat with you, too. Thank you so much.
0: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Christine Sorensen, the president of the BC Nurses Union. Well, are you one of the many Canadians who made that shift to work from home at the beginning of the pandemic? You may have been a bit uncertain about the idea in the beginning. Turns out a lot of people are embracing the idea. And joining me to talk about some new numbers in his latest research on this is the president of Research Co, Mario Canseco. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, So you asked people uh, about the home life, office life, working at home, and what did you find?
3: Well, we asked this question in April uh, when we were at the start of the pandemic, and we saw a little bit of hesitation from Canadians about the fact that they were going to be working from home, Uh, certain doubts, particularly when it came to technology and whether they would be able to get their job done. And now, eight months later, uh, they have embraced it wholeheartedly. We have 80% who say that they want to continue working from home after the COVID-19 pandemic ends, up from 65% back in April. So the more time passes with our home offices, the more we like them.
0: <laughs> That's a pretty big jump.
3: It's definitely big. And, you know, one of the issues here that really needs to be taken into consideration is employers. What are they going to do with this scenario? You know, you you have shown your employer, that you can get your job done from home. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of uh, difficulty in in your side of things. Uh, There's ways to make sure that your employees are doing the job they're supposed to be doing. So it's going to be very difficult once we go back to the way life was before we had COVID-19. What is going to happen with those offices? Do you continue uh, to carry on with all of this real estate if your employees want to be working from home more often?
0: And it touched on a few different uh, aspects of this as far as, uh, and, you, and you mentioned this, trust. Do you, does your employer trust that you are working? You're not doing uh, all of the other things you could be doing at home. You're not you know, building an addition to your house. You're actually working on, uh, for the job you're paid for. And whether or not you actually have the tools, though, and the equipment needed for you to be able to work and be productive from home.
3: Yes this is important because it was one of the things that was definitely worrying uh, Canadians uh, you know especially if you're somebody who wasn't really used to working from home or didn't have a laptop that was issued by your company, or whether you had a Wi Fi system that was going to make it all worthwhile. We have 89% of those who are working from home right now provisionally who say that their company trusts that they're carrying on with their duties from home, which is a lot easier to do now because of all of this technology. And 78% who say that their company is perfectly equipped for them to do their work from home. So that hesitation that we saw in the early days. Uh, has given way to a situation where people no longer uh, feel that they have to go
0: back to the office. Uh, did you So for the, the 20% then that uh, don't, uh, have not embraced this work-from-home lifestyle, did you get into or ask people what some of the barriers or the things that they didn't like are?
3: Well, uh, there's a couple of things that really jump out of the page when you're looking at the numbers. Uh, one of them is the camaraderie from the office. We see that there's people who really like working from home, but they also miss the people uh, who they used to work with. Uh, 68% of Canadians, a little bit higher with men at 73%, highest in British Columbia at 86%. So there's something about our offices that makes us want to go back there. Uh, And the other thing that is quite interesting is how many people really miss their commute. You know, we usually think about commuting to work as something that is going to be a hassle, something that is going to be problematic. Uh, There's definitely Canadians who... Have figured out how to do that daily commute and really turn it into something that is going to uh, be a highlight of their day. There's 47 percent who say they miss that. It's a little bit higher with those who are aged 18 to 34, uh, but those are two aspects that are making us a little bit more hesitant about continuing with this for the rest of our lives. I think we're looking at a delicate balance here. You know, maybe you want to do this more often. Save yourselves from from the commute, but not necessarily do it five days a week like you are now.
0: I find that really interesting, people saying that they miss the commute, because I think you're right. When we think about that, we think of a, a task that you have to do. And we look at, uh, think of the traffic reports and the cars stopped on Highway 1 every morning and every evening and think, well, how could someone possibly miss that? But it must be other types, whether people walk to work or cycle to work or, or stop by a favorite coffee shop or something like that.
3: Well, it's interesting because when you look at the regional breakdowns for that question, the place where it really skyrockets is Quebec. You know, they really like their commute. Uh, they are people who maybe have a specific routine in mind when they're going to the office, and this is one of the things that is making this a little bit uh, harder for them to understand. You know, they're at 49% on this question. Here in DC we're at 50%. So. There's something about commutes uh, that is not as terrible as when we think about the worst one we've ever had. And I think that is what's happening to those who are working from home. You know, you're missing that one day when everything was perfect, when you found the parking spot, when the bus stopped immediately after you got in there. Um, It's not what happens every day, but it's the one thing that they miss.
0: Uh, You also asked people about distractions while they're working at home. Uh, I remember talking to a friend, this was before the pandemic, uh, she was somebody that works often from home saying, well, the big difference is when you take a break, you do a load of laundry when you're working from home. When you're working at the office, you get to go outside and maybe go to a cafe or go and at least get some air and and walk around the city. Uh, But uh, people talked about this as far as having distractions at home as well. Well, when we first asked this
3: question in April and we saw 46 percent of those who are working from home saying that they're having a difficult time because of distractions, my mind was thinking, well, you know, maybe you are you, you have a kid at home who you need to take care of because the schools are closed or you want to pay attention to the news and try to figure out how the pandemic is going Uh, The numbers didn't move. We still see 46 percent of those provisional home workers who say they are having a difficult time working because of distractions at home. And it seems to be affecting those who are aged 18 to 34 the most at 54 percent. So a little bit easier for baby boomers and Generation Xers to compartmentalize and say, okay, now I have to get this work done. I'm not going to get distracted by sports on television or anything else that needs to be done. I'm not going to do laundry until I finish this. And it's a little bit tougher for the younger generation, Uh, maybe also because of the lack of space. You know, you might be in a situation where you don't have that designated office and the distractions are going to be there for you.
0: Have you asked companies uh, what they feel about this, whether or not they're ready to let or to, to continue down this model to maybe scale down their actual workspace and move to a permanent model of more staff and employees working at home? You know, it's an interesting dilemma because at first it was all about trying to make this work
3: within the confines of the pandemic. And by this, I mean, we're going to have larger spaces between desks. We're maybe going to have a situation that allows you to have a barrier between specific cubicles. We used to have a space where we had 50 people and now we can only have 20. That was the start. And I think what we see now is a situation where companies are going to have to rethink how they do all of these things, especially if you haven't seen that drop in what you need to be doing. You haven't seen productivity plummet because of people working from home. And I think the companies will need to understand that as well. Do I want to continue paying an obscene amount of money for a space if my employees can do this from home?
0: Uh, Any other surprises uh, coming out of this survey?
3: Well, one thing that was also quite interesting is when you're looking at the way in which people feel about Uh, certain aspects of their daily life and and you know some of the changes that we see here uh, particularly when it comes to the way in which your office is set up you know the fact that you have a lot of people who say my company trusts what I'm doing I don't think that was something that I quite expected Uh, you know part of the situation there is you may be easily distracted especially if you're working with a laptop for instance you know it's so easy to fall down those rabbit holes if you're doing something on the internet uh, but you know, to see that level of, of confidence uh, from employees to their employers, saying I'm at home, but I'm still going to get the job done, the numbers are higher than uh, than what
0: I expected. Interesting uh, findings, for sure, Mario. We will leave it there. But thanks so much, and have a good weekend. My pleasure. You too, Joe. All right, that is Mario Canseco. He is the president of Research Co. Well, we've talked about the fact that one of the hottest items selling out as the weather got colder, more rain in the forecast was patio heaters. A lot of that for places like restaurants that have extended their patios, trying to get the outdoor space, being able to use that space as much as possible, even as we head into the winter. But a lot of people, even if you have a little bit of outdoor space, have been looking at things like those propane heaters, fire pits, if you're allowed to have those wherever you live. So, which ones are the best for the planet? So, Which ones are the best to have in that space? We are joined now by Blair King, who is an environmental scientist. Blair, so great to have you on the show.
4: Thanks for having me on.
0: And I know you haven't gone into the great detail of looking how, at the emissions of, of every different type of heater and, and where the differences are. But generally speaking, can you talk a little bit about the difference, say, if somebody's going to go get a fire pit or go get a propane type heater?
4: Well, ultimately, it, it depends on where you're getting your energy and where you're going to use the, the unit. We live in BC, where most of our hydro, where most of our electricity is generated by hydroelectricity, and in BC, frankly, an electric heater, an electric outdoor heater, like the kind uh, you can buy at Costco, is by far the best environmentally speaking because the energy used is. Non-car is non-carbon and it doesn't generate any uh, emissions or smoke smoke and the like if you don't have access to if you can't get an electric one then you've got the choices of a fire pit a natural gas or a propane and each one of those three has ups and downs most Houses in the Lower Mainland probably have a natural gas hookup in their backyard. If you have that, then the next best version would be a natural gas where you you gone you went to uh, Fortis and arranged to get yourself renewable natural gas as part of your nat- natural gas uh, setup. Because then at least you're using what would, what's called zero carbon natural gas, and that's. Gas that has that has been generated from recovery from various uh, natural sources from landfills, etc. The the next next down the line are are the propane or the fire pits. A fire pit, if I live in Langley and in Langley we aren't allowed outdoor fires at this time of year. If uh and so a fire pit is uh, would be problematic. If you want to have a little backyard fire and you're not afraid that the fire department will come and get you, then a fire pit can be a reasonable choice if you have access to wood that would otherwise be broke uh, would otherwise be disposed of or thrown away. like if our my neighbor had to take down a tree uh, recently because the arborist said that it was going to fall down, that would is going to degrade over time. And so that would be an excellent low carbon way of getting rid of, uh, of getting yourself heat in the backyard. But in the process, it's gonna generate smoke. It's gonna generate carbon monoxide and it's gonna generate soot. Uh, and finally, you get the, your propane heaters and the propane heaters do a great job. They're more efficient at giving you heat than a fireplace. Uh, But they have all the challenges associated with propane, which is that you have to uh, propane gives off a lot of carbon dioxide when it's burnt. It's a very clean burning, so it only gives off heat and carbon dioxide and and water. And it is a uh, but there's all the effort involved in getting propane, uh, the propane tank. There's a lot of life cycle analyses that suggest that the propane uh, heaters are not the best for the planet.
0: And is that because I would think that there, there might be some, the thought process there might be because when you go and fill it up, you kind of take your old one and get a new one that that's recycling and it's not bad, not that bad for the environment. But but there's more to it, I take it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. A, a propane, re- recognize that propane. Is a from a carbon uh, carbon perspective, it's it's pure carbon when it's burnt out. It will from a climate change perspective, uh, it has to be separated from natural gas and is shipped at pressure in and stored at various locations. It has, as I say, it does. It provides a very clean and uh, a clean burn. So as long as you're outside, and uh, it is a great way of getting heat as long as you are not as concerned about the climate uh, the climate effects.
0: And when you mentioned to the fire pit, uh, like you said, if you can get past the, if it's legal or not, or you're not worried about being caught. So when you talk about the smoke and the soot, how concerned would you be uh, having that uh, if sitting around? I mean, we think about sitting around the campfire uh, when you're out camping or, or maybe in the summertime. Is it an issue? Do you think if you were doing that on a regular basis throughout the winter as well?
4: Well, as, as we know, fireplaces, uh, if, if you have a fireplace in your house, you make sure that you catch the, catch the carbon monoxide and you have a, a seal so that you don't, uh, so that the uh, small particulate matter, et burnt off doesn't, uh, you, doesn't waft into your face. Everyone knows the fire pit. Uh, I don't like re- uh, white rabbits be, <laughs> that you say when the, the smoke comes into your face to get, try and get it out of your face. Realistically, every time the smoke runs into your face, you're inhaling particulates that will cause over long term uh, issues with your lungs. And and we all agree that this is a minor issue that we can deal with. Uh, But if you're going to do it for a long period of time, it will have it will have an effect on your health.
0: And interesting that you mentioned uh, the fuel as well, the wood, that if it's wood that's already being taken down. Uh, in my neighbourhood, someone uh, took a tree down, the city took a tree down a couple of weeks ago. That wood was claimed within hours of, of the city taking it down with people coming by and taking it. So so different than, uh, I mean, a tree that's already going to be l- fall, uh, felled, uh, different than going out and and harvesting your own wood? Yeah, and ultimately
4: harvesting your wood is is renewable uh it's the the challenge is that it's renewable over the long term uh you every time you cut down a tree and burn it it take it may take that tree between 20 and 75 years to regrow and take back up the carbon that you let out uh so when we say that it's renewable and it doesn't cause a problem it does does it, it In the long-term thinking, burning a tree doesn't have climate effects. In the short term, in the middle term, you put yourself into climate debt by burning wood. uh, And so there is that consideration as well.
0: Uh, What about the heat itself? Does one offer better heat if your main goal is staying warm, whether you're in your backyard or whatever outdoor space you have?
4: Well, if you're if you're going for heat, then the propane or the electric heaters are by far, and natural gas are by far the most effective. They they give they burn cleanly and give off heat, uh, heat and water, and uh, heat water and carbon dioxide. And they are a good propane heater gives off a lot of heat and burns very efficiently a fire pit is often as you know it doesn't give off huge heat it's more about uh, the ambiance and uh, i've never tried to roast a marshmallow on a uh, on a propane heater so it depends on what you're aiming for if you're sitting around the fire with a group of people to socialize that's different than if you're setting up a heater so that you can talk to your grandparents uh, in the driveway because you aren't allowed to have them in your house.
0: And do you think people are are paying enough attention to the differences as far as there has been such a run on these products and people buying them that maybe have never purchased them before?
4: I'm guessing that 99% of the people who do it aren't really thinking about that consideration because it isn't something that really is brought up in the sales uh, so it, the only time you ever really see it is when people suggesting that you buy electric rather than buying uh, the gas, because the electric, the, the electric in B.C. are the environmentally sensitive choice if you're going to heat the outdoors. And one, and as a couple of researchers have pointed out, it's really, really hard to heat the outdoors. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be wasting energy in one way or another.
0: All right. Blair, good advice and great information. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me
0: on. All right. That is Blair King, an environmental scientist, talking about the differences uh, in the various uh, types of heating uh, machine, uh, not machines, uh, heating uh, things that we're using to heat the outdoors, be it the fire pit, the propane fire ring, the propane, the fire table, uh, the uh, heater, the electric heater, you name it. Uh, interesting when Blair said there, too. Uh, it makes sense. Very difficult to heat the outdoors. Unless, of course, you're a child and you leave the door open, because don't we all remember with our parents saying, Shut the door. We're not heating the outdoors. Well, that's true. You weren't heating the outdoors. Vancouver police every year put out the warning about so called porch pirates. The name says it all. We're going to talk to the Better Business Bureau about ways to protect yourself and your goods during the holidays. But first, take a listen to just a bit of this ad from the Vancouver Police Department.
3: This Christmas, don't let thieves ruin your holidays. If you shop online, then you are probably expecting some packages on your doorstep. Thieves are waiting and watching, ready to steal your parcels and Christmas cheer. Help stop parcel thefts by following some of these suggestions. Have your package delivered to your work. Have your package delivered to the home of a relative or friend that you know will be home. Have your package held at your local post office for pickup. Take advantage of ship to store option that many stores offer. Request that your package has signature confirmation upon delivery. Ask your carrier to place packages in an area out of plain view. This holiday season, let's make life hard for thieves.
0: Hey, Vancouver police, you're coming with me. If nothing else, you got to give them top marks for the acting in that video. Some timely advice from the VPD. Let's bring in Carla Laird, the manager of community and public relations with the Better Business Bureau. Carla, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. I love that. Ad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was talking about it on the show yesterday. The, um, the police officer obviously is a police officer in uh, that uh, um, uniform. Uh, the rest are Grinches that uh, they're people. I'm not sure if they got officers to dress up as Grinches. I'm not sure. But it was Grinches stealing the packages. So pretty obvious yeah. uh, that they were thieves. Uh, those were, were some tips. How big of a problem? Is it more of a problem this year with more people shopping online?
5: Absolutely, it actually is a much bigger problem. I mean, just looking at our stats here at BBB between November first to yesterday, which was December tenth, we're actually seeing where we received close to a hundred reports, which is pretty high, especially for that time period. So for us, it's definitely concerning. And then what makes it a little more concerning too is the fact that. You have new retailers or retailers that were typically in store, but because of the migration to online transactions, they've now put themselves in the online market space. A consumer tries them out for the first time. The product is delivered, but because uh, a sports pirate has swiped it, they think that this vendor is not trustworthy. And so it does create a bad impression for businesses, too. And so, yes, this is definitely something that we need to be paying attention to, especially now more than ever.
0: So you're getting reports then from people saying, hey, I think I was scammed. This uh, online retailer, maybe it's somewhere they'd never shopped before, uh, saying, hey, they never delivered my package, when what really happened is that package was stolen.
5: Pretty much. Yep, that sums it right up perfectly.
0: Um, in that video by uh, Vancouver Police, they offer up some suggestions, although in some cases, depending on what kind of living arrangement you have, uh, it can be difficult to, to work out another solution. And I know there are a lot of retailers as well, that it's their policy to leave things at the front door. So how do you deal with that? So I think when it comes to, I think there's a greater sensitivity to porch pirating
5: right now. And so I think retailers are more um, willing to have conversations with consumers about how best to make sure their packages get to them safely. And so if there is an uh, an opportunity for you to connect with your retailer to pick it up in store, or if it's a case where you can, like you heard in the video, go to your your shipment facility and pick it up there or to your local post office, it reduces the risk of you not being around. Or even if you were planning to be home, you had to step out for groceries. In the case of one of our um, victims of Porch Pirates, they stepped out for 20 minutes the package came, and within, the, within that 20-minute window, it was stolen. So you want to reduce all of that concern. Try to have it pick, um, delivered somewhere where you can go at your convenience to collect it, knowing it will be safely stored until you get there.
0: Uh, I was thinking that that it would probably be a deterrent if you've got some kind of security system or a visible camera. But then I saw a story today out of London, Ontario, where there is security footage that is actually quite clear. And it shows a man coming to the porch. He takes two packages from the porch of the house. And again, it's very high quality video. Uh, but then not only does he steal the packages from the porch, he comes back about an hour later and breaks into the home. I guess he'd cased it out looked through the window, seen something inside, uh, came in, broke in, uh, was confronted with somebody, didn't realize there was somebody in the home, took off, and now police have put this the video pictures out there to try and reach him or to try and, and find somebody who might know who this person is. Uh, but that's yeah. frightening to think that thieves are just so brazen. Yep, and the thing is, they're opportunists. So this, while the security camera is a
5: deterrent, if they really see something that would make them want to take that extra step to even now go into your home... If they see where, or feel that like there is an opportunity to do it, they will. And just even from speaking to the victims that have reported to us, they are clearly targeting affluent communities or affluent neighbourhoods or in suburban neighbourhoods or, or apartment buildings where they see a frequent delivery system taking place. So lots of people are ordering, boxes are being left at the main door for that apartment building, and people just come and pick them up at their leisure, but it does show that there's a window where they could grab and go. That's how they are, and so they will not hesitate to do that.
0: And so, how do you, other than than telling people don't don't do this? I mean, I would imagine some companies. Or, in fact, I got an email from somebody yesterday saying uh, it was actually a neighbor who kept stealing their package, and the company kept replacing it. Uh, but that's only going to happen for so, so many times before the company finally says, "No, we're not going to replace this anymore."
5: Yeah, and so that's where it also creates a concern for businesses, especially small businesses. Right now, you're trying to support um, your local stores, but if your your packages keep getting stolen, it comes from their inventory that they have to replace out of their own pockets. And so, yes, it does create that issue as well. So ultimately, when you think about porch pirating, it's not just the consumers who are you know forced out of having a an, an, a product or their delivery. Or it's not just a case where they may have to fund refund the product or the, the cost for that product to get something new. It's not a case where, you know, if their insurance doesn't kick in because if they didn't insure that product, they would they have to spend more to get it. There's also the business side where the business might be negatively impacted from an impression standpoint or where they have to replace the inventory or they might have to upfront the cost to replace it and deliver it back to that consumer. So it really hurts everyone ultimately in the end.
0: What about sites as well? And this is a bit, a bit of a different topic, but uh, with the electronics being a really hot item this year, uh, people reselling them on, on places like Craigslist or other sites. So we've seen uh, problems with that people right. uh, kind of a bait and switch. Are you seeing increases in, in those kinds of issues as well? Actually, yes. And especially with the PS5, it's the one of the hottest commodities right now. It's <laughs> funny, you know, someone
5: shared a a, a clip of a, a Craigslist ad where someone was selling a PS5. Well, they seem to be selling a PS5, but it's not until you really read the details, you notice that it's a picture of a PS5 for the actual cost of a PS5. So <laughs> these are the kinds of tricks that are present online, and, and they say it's a picture of a PS5, you're spending over $500 for it, they're going to ship it to you, and that's what they're trying to do to lure someone into making an e-transfer to get that money. And so, these are the different cons that are out there, bait and, and switch, and we recently saw on the news where a guy was trying to get his PS5 sold, but ended up getting bomb-rushed by a group of guys, and that would bear spray him. Mm-hmm. So, it's definitely something you have to be extremely careful and cautious about
0: at this time people are looking for all different kinds of ways to make money all right so well it's good advice unfortunate that we have to talk about this i think every year and like you said it's been a, an increase in uh, issues and complaints this year uh, hopefully people uh, will keep their packages safe and uh, continue that through the holidays uh, carla thanks so much for joining us uh, as usual good to talk with talk with you Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. That is Carla Laird, the manager of community and public relations with the Better Business Bureau. Well, anyone who's listened to this show for any amount of time likely knows that I'm a huge dog lover. I'm a sucker for a good dog story. So earlier today, I was looking at social media and saw a VPD sergeant who put out a tweet with a picture of what is the one of the most uh, the cutest dogs I've ever seen. It said, "This beautiful little dog was turned over to me." found in South Vancouver. If you know the owner, please have them contact us. And I thought, oh no, what has happened? Who belongs to this dog? And there was a reply though, saying thank you, Sergeant Christensen, for rescuing Bella. Then it goes on to say, after she managed to sneak out and hop into a UPS truck... I thought, well, there's got to be more to that story. And we have reached another member of the Havlisek family. Valerie Havlasek is on with us now, uh, one of the owners of Bella. Thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. Uh, so what happened?
6: Well, I let our dogs out. We have two dogs, Sammy, a Cocker Spaniel, and Bella, who's a Maltese. And I let them out in the yard. A few minutes later, Bella came back, or uh, Sammy came back, but no Bella. So I went outside and I discovered that the front gate had been left open. And this happens occasionally and Bella's normally just in the next door neighbor's yard, but this time she was just nowhere to be found. So the whole family went out, we scoured the neighborhood calling for her and no luck came back in, made a report to the city of a missing dog and then printed up our posters and went back out, putting posters all over the neighborhood. My husband went and, cooked some chicken on the barbecue thinking that might lure her back and um, then we finally got a call that sergeant christensen had also he found the dog so he reported the found dog to the city and then they connected the dots and called us and we went and picked her up and sergeant christensen called me just to tell me how much he enjoyed meeting her and, tell, and he told me what had happened he uh he he was just I, at the right place at the t- right time, I guess. And a UPS driver waved him down and said, I found this dog in my truck and just handed him over. <laughs> or handed <her> over. <laughs> and this is totally in Bella's character. She will hop into anybody's car. <laughs> she, so she went for a joyride. ride. <laughs> <laughs>
0: We uh, luckily we can laugh about it now because uh, things could have gone so uh, horribly wrong uh, if they'd gone uh, in in any other direction. How far away was she from where where she kind of went off and met up with the truck?
6: Apparently, it was only just a block or two away. uh, When I guess she appeared in his truck, and she had he had no idea where she'd come from, so he didn't know where to bring her back. So he gave her. She wasn't wearing her tags, which. She's not going to be wearing her tags at all
0: times. <laughs> yeah, because you think of that—you're just going out to yeah. to have a pee in the yard, a yeah. little dog. You you probably don't need the tag for that. But who who knew she was going to go on a joyride with the UPS driver?
6: Yeah, no, nope, she had quite an adventure.
0: <laughs> uh, the picture of her is adorable with the with the sergeant uh, holding her picture up. It, it must have felt good to you that uh, so many people, when they realized something was was going on and this dog was missing, uh, came together to get her home.
6: Yes, and Sergeant Christensen was really a hero. He called and we chatted and he told me that he, they'd bonded and he'd put his name down and he was kind of hoping that no one would claim her because he wanted to adopt her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that makes it even even more the fact that he put the picture out there because he must yeah. have known doing putting the picture out there that that really did up the chances of reuniting Bella with her family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All's well that ends well. <laughs> and and uh, you mentioned that, that she's the kind of dog that would jump in a vehicle. Has anything? Has, has she jumped in other vehicles before?
6: Well, we've had dog sitters who um, will take them to, like when we go on vacation, um, a friend of mine was looking after them and she was worried, how am I going to get them in my car? And I said, oh, you just have to open the door. <laughs> they will just jump right in. So, like they just are waiting for any chance to go for a car ride.
0: Wow, which is which is good when you're when you're busy and trying to take the dog somewhere, but not so great to when you'd prefer. Although maybe it's better that she jumped in the truck and instead of instead of wandering around the neighborhood. I guess.
6: I don't know. I mean, i ended up okay, but it could have gone another way, I guess.
0: Well, when I first saw that, too, I I thought of, oh, isn't that the making of a Disney film? Because uh, or or what's the movie? Is it Call of the Wild where the dog uh, take gets uh, becomes a stowaway? And I think that's the one I'm thinking of. And imagine if the UPS truck driver hadn't noticed her and and it was, you know, well into the shift and, and locks up the truck for the night and doesn't realize there's a little dog in there. Yeah, she. who knows where she could have ended up. (laughs) Well, it's a a great story. We're so glad that you were able to join us to talk more about it. Uh, We we like having some good news stories and and that. uh, My guess is, like you said, Bella's always going to wear her tag now, and maybe you might be keeping a closer eye when she's out visiting the neighbours.
6: Yes, that's why I thought I would talk with you today, just to remind people that with all the deliveries that are happening now, got to keep an extra close eye on your (laughs) dog.
0: All right. Well, that's uh, great advice, Valerie. Thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk about this. And uh, and thanks again for sharing such a a story with a happy ending. Thank you. And I also want to say thank you to Sergeant Christensen and the Vancouver uh, Police Department for all their help. All right. Sounds good. Valerie, thanks again so much. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Bye. That is Valerie Havlasek, the owner of Bella, and a big shout out of appreciation to Sergeant Mark Christensen, who posted a beautiful photo. You can even kind of see it in his eye that he wants to adopt this dog. They already look like a team in this photo. Bella is a very, very cute dog, and he's hugging her pretty tight as though he wouldn't mind uh adopting Bella into his household. Not the case this time, but what a great story. She jumped into the UPS truck. Thankfully, the UPS driver saw that he had some uh, untagged cargo in there and everything ended up uh, working out just fine. Well, we know search crews that go out, the volunteers that search for people and rescue them after they've become lost, often in the backcountry in very rough terrain. We know they have a lot of tools that they use to make sure they can safely go out and do these rescues. North Shore Rescue just got a new tool to add to the toolbox. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Mike Danks, who is the North Shore Rescue team leader. Thanks so much for being here.
7: Thanks for having us on the show, Jill. Uh,
0: I think a lot of people might think you already had this tool. I think you've had it in your possession, but it's now actually approved to use. Talking about night vision goggles.
7: Yeah, yeah. So it has been a three-year process to get approval. Um, But again, change uh, does take time. And this is a very progressive move for search and rescue in British Columbia. And as you said, this is another tool that's in the toolbox. And, the primary reason for this is the safety of our rescuers. And secondly, secondly it's going to also reduce the exposure time of the people that we're looking for.
0: Uh, so what has been the, the reason why this type of technology hasn't been allowed in the past?
7: Just in the past, it's it's just been with the military um, and police. And that's kind of just been the way it has, has been. And we've, you know, we, we showed an interest and we were kind of told it's it's not going to happen it's not going to be available to volunteers and the more that we kind of pushed and and you know got people enlisted that's when um the process started to to kind of work and you know I I really hope that the the pilot is successful and this can be a tool that is utilized throughout the province for all the volunteer teams that are that are dedicating their their time to doing these calls.
0: Uh, what, how big of a difference do you think it will make then when you're out on those night searches?
7: Yeah, I think if you look at the stats, so between 2018 and 2020, um, we I think it's 37% of our calls come in uh, an hour before sunset or after sunset. Um, when that happens, it puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the rescuers to try to conduct the call before darkness sets in. It's just the most efficient way to get people out or to locate them is by helicopter. Now we don't have that pressure on us. We can take our time. We can utilize this tool um, to access very remote areas. We can insert crews um, into remote areas. And more importantly, we can search areas without exposing our members to avalanche hazard or the hazards um, of very technical terrain at night.
0: And so, are these? We're talking about night vision goggles. Are these uh, the the type? Is this the technology that picks up on heat? So, say if somebody's in a in a snow cave or or hunkered down under a tree somewhere, will you be able to see a heat source from a distance away?
7: That would be the flare, and that's a tool also that we have in our toolbox. But the night vision goggles a- actually amplify light. So, if someone is in the Haines Valley, for instance, and they have a flashlight or they have their cell phone. And it's within view of the aircraft. Um, The goggles actually magnify that light source tremendously. Um, Just with some of the training we've done in the past, you've been able to spot a cell phone light from over a kilometer away, which is just Mm. absolutely incredible.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you've trained. Have you yourself used these?
7: Yeah, we have. We did some training at Top Flight in Penticton, and that's when we really understood how powerful this tool was.
0: And so, at this point, then, how many of the how many of the goggles will you get?
7: So we have seven sets of goggles that are controlled by Talon helicopters, and the idea is two of the goggles will be for the pilots um, in the cockpit, and then we'll have two more sets of goggles that will be for SAR members in the back that can manage crews with those, and they can also be spotting out of the aircraft as well.
0: And you mentioned the cell phone light. I mean, that's pretty amazing to think of from a kilometer away. You're able to to to, to see that. So and I would imagine with other light sources, like if there was a, was like a, a small fire or a small flashlight or, or something else like that.
7: Yeah. And that's the beauty. It's any light source. So if you have um, a, a moon out, like a significant moon, I mean, it, it turns it into daylight. So it's Again, you know, we've got a lot to learn with it, but from the training that we've done thus far, um, it seems like a very efficient tool. And the big thing for us is it really reduces the amount of people we need to put um, in the field. And if one of our members is injured, this is a tool that we can utilize to get them back um, to urgent care as quickly as possible.
0: Uh, you talked a little bit about the fact that uh, up until now, these haven't been allowed uh, for anybody other than, I think, the military or a police group. Uh, I would imagine that's an issue of safety. They don't want to suddenly, uh, say, criminals or, or, or the wrong people to get their hands on these. So do they come within a, a different set of rules as far as, unfortunately, we've also done stories about your team being, uh, your the, your supplies being stolen. Uh, do you have to rethink that or do something different now to make sure they're secured?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So the the goggles are actually a controlled product, and they are housed with Talon helicopters. Um, so they're not a part of our regular stock, if you will. So if we do need to use those goggles, um, it will come with the aircraft.
0: Uh, are you are you finding do other? Uh, you mentioned that it would be great if the pilot project then leads to other search and rescue teams being able to do this. Is there is there a level of jealousy now? The other teams uh, that you, that your team has this and they don't have it yet.
7: You know, I don't think so. I think this is all about um, introducing new technology. I think everyone understands um, the rationale for a pilot program to ensure that it is the right fit. Um, And the hope is that it will be dispersed amongst um, all the groups because each and every team in British Columbia is full of very dedicated volunteers with amazing skill sets. And we all work together. So if there's an immediate need in the, in the area around us, I mean, these, this um, tool will be available to them. And hopefully when the pilot is complete, it will be available more broadly um, throughout the province.
0: Uh, and uh, wanted to ask you too. Uh, how are things going as far as we're now getting into uh, the the shorter days, uh, the the darker, longer nights, uh, the cooler temperatures? I know it's been a busy year for you and for your team. Uh, how are things going for, uh, now as far as call loads and and people going out and and unfortunately needing rescue?
7: Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like this is going to be our busiest year to date. Um, the local mountains here got quite a bit of snow overnight so we're anticipating it's going to be very busy this weekend and we just really want to stress to people um, to stay in balance enjoy the controlled terrain within the resort if you are going to be going out into the backcountry be very aware that you're going into uncontrolled avalanche terrain and you need to have your avalanche safety equipment with you and you also have to have an understanding of how to use that equipment
0: uh, it's an interesting point because, uh, like you, you've said in the past, there's the checklist and what people need to take out there. But that's a, a good point, that if you don't know how to use it, it's not much good to you.
7: Yeah, absolutely. And we know um, from the local stores here that um, all the safety equipment and outdoor equipment is is flying off the shelves. And we just really hope that, again, people have an understanding of how to use it. And we really encourage people to start small. Start with, with smaller hikes. Um, in familiar terrain before you start venturing out into more remote areas.
0: All right, good advice and exciting to learn about the new equipment that's going to be part of the team. Uh, Mike Danks, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate that.
7: Yeah, thank you so much. You take care.
0: Okay, you too. That is Mike Danks, team leader with North Shore Rescue.